Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. So to kick this one off, I'm going to start with the admission that I'm exhausted. Uh, this weekend, Billy and I got a new dog. We, we jumped really quickly into this one. Usually, we have a tradition over here. I've mentioned this before, that when a dog passes, we usually give it some time, and then we find a new dog. We don't forget the old dogs. We always talk about the Moran Dog Hall of Fame, but part of the process of grieving is all right this dog has had a great life over here now we're going to give another dog a great life so I just so happened to be on pet finder the other day and it was kind of funny I was at work and it popped up in an ad and I'm like okay I'll bite and I'll see and we found a list for a dog named Penny who's uh, supposedly super affectionate playful great with other dogs just looked like Lily I hate to be weird but that, that was part of it I looked at it, she looked like a, a little Lily so long story short, we applied, we got the dog. Luckily, I, I think we've done rescue dogs for so long now, and uh, proof is in the pudding that we give them a good life because our dogs usually live, knock on wood, very, very long lives. We got the call, and it was great. We're all excited, and they're like, oh, you're going to be able to pick them up Saturday. We thought it was going to take a little longer. The dog was down in down south somewhere, Billy knows, not Tennessee, might have been South Carolina, something like that. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I come down from the transfer room the other day, from shooting a video and I'm like man you should see the spider up there and Billy goes you should see this email and it was an email from the rescue group saying that we would have to pick the dog up about an hour from our house a little over an hour from our house which was fine we figured you know the last one we got it was like 40 minutes sometimes with these groups what happens is they arrange to have dogs taken from the high kill shelters down south up north where there's a, more of a shortage of dogs that people are looking to adopt so it's a great a great opportunity for everybody involved and usually you end up meeting someplace last time it was like at a local pet smart or something they had all these people there and you know you came and you got your dog it was a really cool event and that's what I kind of thought we were doing this time not quite so fast we get the call that we're going to pick them up in Union Connecticut which is a little ways away from us awesome at 5 45 in the morning on a Saturday and I'm like oh my lord like I we work Billy and I work all week long we have the dogs we have the spiders we have the kids like we're usually our Saturdays are one day where we get to sleep late but we're like you know what it's totally worth it we can do this we were gonna have to get up you know 4 30 or so to get there in time to make sure they were you know we didn't want to miss it because what happens is they put the dogs on a van air-conditioned van they drive them up from down south and they have a number of stops along their route and you go there pick up your dogs and then I mean some of the routes were originally like three o'clock in the morning so we were happy to get that route long story short day before we're supposed to go I checked the list because they said check back because sometimes there are changes and we found out that our pickup time had changed to 5 a.m <laughs> so that meant we were getting up at 3 30 on a Saturday we watched my grandson on Friday night Billy watches my grandson and he usually gets picked up around 10 30 or so so there really wasn't an opportunity for us to go to sleep early we were tired and the drive there was I thought maybe I'd make good time but it was a lot of windy back roads and when we got up in the morning not only was it pitch black but there was an incredible amount of fog out it was like Stephen King's The Mist if you know that movie like really bad fog dark windy roads not lit no street lights whatsoever fog was a very stressful drive so you know add that to the fact that we were running on a lot of sleep but we got her she's amazing she came in immediately bonded with Bella who's the other young dog that we adopted recently when Molly passed and the two of them were like it was almost like two friends that were like oh you're here and they've been playing together which is fun to a point except they're very very energetic rambunctious and they're running around the yard chasing each other they come in the house they're running around the house chasing each other but She's getting along with everybody. It's It's been a really good experience. But last night, we went to go to bed. We had a bed set up for her. On the, We have dog beds. We have a futon that dogs sleep on. Our dogs live better than a lot of people, honestly. And she hops on the bed. We cover her up. We get in the bed. She jumps on her bed. I'm like, no, no, no. You're not sleeping on the bed, sweetheart. We don't have the dogs in the bed anymore. We did that. That's done. And we put her back on the floor. She jumps back on the bed. We put her back on the floor, back on the bed, and lays down and kind of does the, like this huge sigh. And finally, I'm like, you know what? I just want to get some sleep. I'm not doing this all night. So we left, let her sleep in the bed. It was adorable. She slept there all night. A couple times, like some of the dogs, when you go to kick your feet, they like pop off the bed. Like Bella, if she's on the bed and I kick my feet to move my feet and move her, she'll jump off the bed, be like, I'm done with this. She just moved, Penny just moved slightly out of the way and she was there all night. But of course, six o'clock this morning, 
Again, we went to bed last night, probably 11, 6 o'clock this morning. Bella decides she wants to play with her, and the two dogs go nuts in the bedroom playing with each other. So not a lot of sleep again. So I only say this because, again, I, I share little tidbits of what's going on in my life, but I have shared that the dog passed. And I want to explain why I'm probably going to be all over the place today because I did want to get the podcast done. But I was exhausted. So here we are. Hopefully, it'll be a good one. Hopefully, I just ask people to forgive me if it doesn't go as well as I have planned because I'm a little out of it today. So we'll see how it goes. Sometimes when I get tired, it just makes me a little more spunky, crazy. My attention deficit disorder kicks up. So we'll see how it goes. But this one today, we had I had an email from, I almost, I wrote down your name. So I apologize. I'm not going to say your name. But Professor Chani is the name he goes under on YouTube. And when he comments on my videos, he wrote me a very lovely, long email that just to let you know, Professor Chani, I do intend to respond to it. You just gave me a lot of talking points and I'm trying to get through it. And I figured at least I can cover some of it in the podcast. But anyway, he brought up a, a couple really good podcast ideas. And I want to throw this out there. If anybody has podcast ideas, please, it doesn't hurt to you know shoot me an email and ask about them. Sometimes I don't do them. And it's not that I think it's a bad idea. Sometimes it comes down to I just don't have enough information at that moment. And there have been podcasts that have taken taken me two years to finally feel like, all right, I'm ready to hit this. So I want to make that clear because I did have somebody get really upset with me once and emailed and like, hey, I recommend a podcast and a topic and you haven't covered. It was just because I didn't feel like I could do a whole podcast on it and I wasn't there yet. Or sometimes they hit me with stuff and I got to do some research. Like I can't just bop right into it. So please, if you offer one, I'm always incredibly appreciative. I have a running list of ones people have asked for and I usually go back to it every once in a while and like, all right, do we have, you know, sometimes it's like I go back to like, oh, I can totally cover that now I've had that we did one it's funny to explain we had somebody talk to me a, a, a while back a way a, a lot of people a while back about what to do when your tarantula has a really bad mold and for a long time I didn't have any personal experience to draw upon to cover that topic and then we had the situation with my piece of species that had the bad mold and suddenly I was able to cover that topic I remember going back like oh there's the one we can cover that now so keep in mind it may be a while it's nothing personal I'm not I, there's never a point and I can honestly say this there's never a point where I've looked at okay maybe once there's, I'll explain that in a moment. There's never a point where I look at one of these questions and go, man, that's a stupid question. What do they think? Never. It's always like, all right, what well, can sometimes I spin them into something different? Sometimes I, I read it like, eh, there's not a lot there, but what if we did this? The only one, and it is not stupid, but I'm just the wrong person to ask is I, every once in a while, I get one, can you do a podcast on how to go about handling tarantulas? That's not my bag. That's not my thing. I don't do a lot of handling. I'm not good at explaining it because I have no real personal interest, uh, personal experience to draw upon with it. So that's one that I shouldn't, I think earlier I said stupid question. It's not a stupid question. People don't realize it. They get in the hobby. They're like, I'm listening to this guy. He seems to know what he's talking about, but he hasn't covered handling yet. So that's one that's just not for me. But even then I don't look at it and go, it's stupid. I'm just like, I'm not your guy. And I've responded before to people like, I'm not your guy with that one. So today the podcast, I will read part of the email. It's a longer email, but I will read the part that goes along with what we're going to be talking about today. So again, this comes from Professor Chani, who has a PhD. This is in, in a learned individual and somebody who actually has a very acute interest in insects and the creepy crawlies because I believe he specializes in invasive insects, which... It sounds like my wife's entomologist. She does obviously pest control. They have entomologists. But anyway, I just I always find it very flattering when I hear from folks that are much more educated on a lot of these topics than I am that have that interest that have studied it. I'm a little bit jealous. I would love to someday take some courses on. But anyway, Professor Shani goes to starts to talk about a bit about himself, explain some background, which I love knowing who I'm talking to. And then he goes into regarding the podcast in particular. I've really enjoyed your most recent episodes this season. Following the podcast before the last one, what makes an advanced tarantula species? I kept thinking that a natural follow-up question to this would be, what makes an advanced tarantula keeper? I do think that you touched on a little bit of what makes an advanced keeper at the end of that podcast, being comfortable with rehousing, moisture dependency, etc. But I'd love to hear a more in-depth discussion of the specific tools a keeper might want in their toolkit to feel like they could call themselves advanced or well-experienced in the hobby. Of course, this is not a call out to judge other keepers on their keeping, and there will certainly be some variations based on individuals involved, but rather wondering what kind of skill set you think really makes a person ready and confident to keep any number of a variety of different species and keep them well. 
Awesome question. I'm kind of shocked I didn't cover this before, and I I might have touched upon it. I think this is one of these ones that I sometimes touch upon in other podcasts. So, for example, I kind of hit on some things in the one What Makes an Advanced Tarantula Species, and I'm sure I've probably talked about what kind of makes somebody more of you know an experienced keeper in the past, but I don't think I've covered it as a topic, and I think it's an interesting one to examine. Now, I will say, part of me likes to avoid, <laughs> tries to avoid this topic, for two reasons. And number one, I see a huge issue sometimes in the hobby of experience being used as a weapon. And and what I mean by that is people talking down on other people because they perceive that they have more experience, whether it be more time in the hobby, uh, the species they've kept, whatever it is, this can be. And it's with, I shouldn't say this is not exclusive to the tarantula hobby because again, I've spoken to folks that are in other hobbies that see the same type of stuff, that elitism, that where folks feel like they're above everybody else and they come online because they want to basically disparage people, make them feel less than them, kind of flex about how good they are with these guys. And I try to avoid that. I don't even like calling myself an expert because I still feel like I've got a lot to learn. I think I have a lot of good experience. Um, I think that because I've written and made videos about them and podcasts about them, it's enabled me to think about them in ways sometimes that people don't spend the time to think about them. I think that's what I bring to the table is I do a lot of reading and talking to other keepers about how they keep them. I try to take all that information in, assimilate it, take what I see I, I, I think having done this for years, you can't help but have a different perspective on the hobby, which is what I love, I think, most about the podcast is it does cause me to sit down and examine things that I might not normally take the time to look at. But again, I know people come to me for an expert, but it's something that a lot of us that have been in the hobby for a while or do this kind of stuff shy away from. And it's kind of an icky moniker. And for some people, it's kind of a dubious moniker because I've spoken to folks that have been like, I've kept tarantulas for 25 years. You have no idea what you're talking about. And then you hear what they do. And it's like, man, you that's not it. That's not how we keep them. So it's a t- I think there's that. And I think there's the fact that it's a tough thing to pin down because there are so many variables. So I think what I did is I tried to break down some points that some of the things, boxes you kind of need to check as you go from being a novice to an we'll call it an experienced keeper. And it's a tricky one because some people, as we get into this, you'll see there's aspects of the hobby that many people will not get into by choice. And that's fine. Does that mean they're not good or not experts with the species they keep? No. But I think with this term, let's define an expert. I think I like the way you put it, that they are experienced and adept at keeping numerous species and types of species with the best utmost care. Like we're not talking about, and this is where, you know, you get the folks online and I was having a conversation with a buddy of mine about, and this might be something we cover in the future about folks that amass these huge collections and they use them to kind of be like, well, I have 260 of these guys, you know, that I've purchased over the last five months and therefore I know more than you. And that's why this is so tough because there are so many little variables that in my mind really have to come together, coalesce around that quote unquote expert or experienced keeper. So let's get the first one out of the way. And the first point I would say is time in the hobby. I do think, obviously, a keeper that is experienced would have experience. And to get experience, it means you actually have to be working with these animals for a certain length of time. Now, why does this get tricky? Well, because there are people out there that, especially if you talk about like the ladder system, as far as, and the ladder system is basically a system where folks that want to start off with very easy, laid back, new world tees and work their way up to the quote unquote advanced old world tees. There's like a ladder system you go through. You start keeping an easier one and then one that's a little more difficult, maybe, you know, a new world with a little more behavior issues. And then you get into the old world species, maybe one of the easier ones. You see what I'm talking about. And folks that take that route are generally on a longer plan as far as getting that experience, meaning they're going to spend a lot more time. If you're doing the plan the way folks lay it out, you get a Rocky Palma sling, you're going to be keeping that sling for four or five years before you apparently can get enough experience with working with a semi-adult or whatever to then move on to the next spider. So I've heard of folks that take 10, 15 years before they even enter old worlds. Now there are other folks that will jump into the hobby and rather quickly pick this stuff up. And that's to say there are folks that jump in the hobby, they get the hobby, they get the rehousings down, they get the, the their techniques down, they know what size cages to put them in, they move 
move into old worlds very, very quickly. So time in the hobby, I think it has to be defined by time spent with multiple types of tarantulas and with old worlds and new worlds. And what I mean by that is I have spoken to people before that will say, oh yeah, I've been in the tarantula hobby for 25 years. And then you find out that they have kept two spiders during that time, a T. albopelosis, and usually the popular one is the G. rosea or G. porteri. And I'm sorry, that's great. You've kept a spider for that long. That's that's awesome. And, and I've done the same thing. It's, it's a great feeling to know you've kept a spider that long, kept it healthy, obviously it's doing well. That isn't the type of experience that's going to get you into the advanced category as far as what your rank is, if there was such a thing. And I think that needs to be said because there are folks out there, unfortunately, that do keep, you know, a couple of species, usually new world species for a long, long time. And they use that as a way to kind of prop themselves up. And I always try to point out that although I've kept, you know, I got my first tarantulas in the nineties, I had two of them and I had one of them for, you know, 25 years. I don't count that time as tarantula experience. Keeping the queen was not a very difficult thing to do. Early on, her care was probably atrocious because I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I think when I started moving, when I started doing my research, getting into the hobby, buying slings, picking up more species, that's when the clock really started uh, ticking. And sure, I did get some valuable experience from keeping her. That's my first spider I ever cupped the move. I remember I had to move her into a new enclosure. And I'm like, how do I go about this? Like, how am I going to get her? Should I poke her? And I remember poking her with a paintbrush and she turned around, wheeled on the paintbrush. I'm like, there's no way I'm doing that again. I was still scared of her at this point. So then I remember looking, I had this big glass cup and I placed it over top of her. I slid a piece of cardboard underneath. I moved her over. And I'm like, this is, this is great. This is perfect. She couldn't do anything. She was perfectly fine. So I did learn some things, but that's really not the type of experience that's going to get you into that, you know, coveted expert or advanced keeper category. So although I do believe that any advanced keeper will have spent quite a bit of time in the hobby and by quite a bit of time I mean most likely several years and I don't want to I can't put a date on it so people come to me like how many years do you have to do it? I can't put a date on it. you'll one of the things is you'll know when you've hit this point but again to gain experience you have to have experience and that takes time and I do believe that there is you have to spend some time working with you know a lot of different stuff you have to have your rehousings down you have to have faced some adversity I think I've heard situations before and talked to people before that everything had gone well with them the hobby they're feeling good I'm in old worlds now I got old worlds these are easy and then something goes wrong and all of a sudden their confidence is shaken an advanced keeper is ready for that. An advanced keeper knows something can go wrong. This is how I deal with it. I'm not going to panic. So I do think the only way to get to that point is putting in a certain number of years. How many years? I don't know. Some people probably get, you know, they're spent two or three years keeping them and they're feeling really good about it. Some people it's going to be longer. So I can't put an actual time on it, but time is something that is necessary. And then moving down to our next point with time, again, it can't just be with easier ones. The species kept is a big part of it. If you're going to be an expert keeper or considered to be an experienced keeper or whatever name we're calling it, you're getting your black belt in tarantula keeping. I think that's, honestly, I think a lot of folks wish there was something like that out there that they want to see some type of tangible reward that they get when they get to that point. Like they want to be able to say, I am now the black belt of keeping tarantulas. And unfortunately we just don't have anything like it because again, there's a lot of different variable variables, but I do think species kept is a big part. You can't just keep that G Rosea for 25 years and call yourself an expert. You have to have kept a, a vast mix, as far as I'm concerned, a variety of different species. And I think that was one of the things that he or she alluded to when they brought up the past podcast. I did kind of jump into this. You have to have kept new worlds. You have to have kept old worlds. You have to have kept moisture-dependent species. There needs to be a variety of specimens kept. I, it And this is where it gets, and this is why I don't like covering this topic sometimes, because it gets sketchy. So I think it comes down to, is the keeper who keeps only Gramostola, Brachypelma, Fonapelma species, could that keeper be considered an expert keeper? Well, can they be an expert keeper as far as, you know, the New World species? I guess, yeah. But as far as when people look at expert keeper, 
we're looking for that person that can take any spider. They can hop online. They can hop on to Fear Not. They can hop on to Pinchers and Pokies. They can hop on to name your favorite dealer. Pick up some spiders and know exactly how to set them up with confidence. Even if there's not a lot of information out there, they know how to put it together and make sure that spiders or those spiders are going to get the best care that they can get. And unfortunately, I don't believe you can do that if you've only kept New World species. That is not, and I have friends out there that have only kept New Worlds. They know what they're doing. They give those New Worlds the best care. And most of them will admittedly say, hey, I'm not into the old worlds. I don't want to get into that aspect of the hobby that seems a little bit too risky for me and that I think right there that type of sentiment points to the fact that there is another side of the hobby with old worlds there is a more complicated more advanced a side of the hobby with more for lack of a better term consequences if the person doesn't know what they're doing and the only way to prepare for that and be able to do that is to actually keep those types of animals to keep those old world species so the expert keeper has to have experience in keeping both new and old worlds, and I'm going to add in both moisture-dependent species. Well, we won't say both moisture-dependent. Most people can keep their arid species, no problem. But ones that require a little more moisture and flat-out moisture-dependent species. I do believe if you're going to go out, and this is, I'm assuming some person is going to go out there and, and kind of posture in a way that shows that they're an expert or they're going to give out advice or they want to be able to support the fact that their advice is coming from somebody that knows what they're doing. In that case, you have to be able to deal with different types of biomes, for lack of a better term, when it comes to tarantula keeping. You should be able to keep those arid species. Anybody should be able to keep an arid species, quite frankly. You can keep some of the arid species on glass. They should do well. You should be able to keep ones that require a little moisture early on. You should be able to keep tarantulas that require that they are moisture dependent. Those ones that we feel like absolutely need moisture throughout their entire life cycle. You should be experienced with all of those. Furthermore, someone who is an expert keeper shouldn't just be keeping terrestrial species or, you know, ones that just you can put a piece of cork bark in there. They may hide, they may not. You should have some experience keeping arboreal species because it's a different setup. It's a different game. And you should be keeping some fossorial species, the burrowers. Again, that's another trick, especially when you work in the moisture dependency. So you should have experience with old worlds, with new worlds, with arboreal, fossorial, and terrestrial tarantulas, and then mixing in the moisture dependency in there. All of those come together. And I will throw this one in as a point. You should have raised up some spiders from slings. I think there. Uh, this is a pet peeve of mine and always has been where folks will go out, they'll buy a juvenile sex tarantula or sometimes an adult sex tarantula and then turn around and start giving care advice on it even though they haven't haven't raised it to that point. Now, can you say how you're setting it up? Absolutely. And can you say, hey, when I looked up, if I got a sling, this is it? Yeah, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who pick up a larger specimen, one that is well-established. It's gone through its precarious sling stage. It's you know much more hardy. And they start talking about, well, to keep a sling, you should do this. No, 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 no. Somebody that is an expert better have raised a lot of their tarantulas from slings. I believe that that is the sign for a lot of us that you're kind of doing it. You're pulling it off when you get your first slings and they grow to adulthood and you can sit back and go, that big, beautiful spider over there, that's all me. I raised that thing. It's it's big. It's beautiful. It's an adult. I got as a little baby sling and I did it. Like that's a huge accomplishment. And I think many of us, what we can all think back to the first few that we raised up that we were able to say, I took that thing from teeny tiny sling that I could barely see that was burrowing, that was freaking me out because I couldn't, you know, tell if it was eating to now look at it. Big, beautiful, bold adult. Huge, huge part of the hobby right there. And that I'm going to circle back. That's where, again, that idea of you kind of have to be in the hobby for a decent amount of time comes in because you know, sure, some of the fastest growing species you may be able to raise up in a year and a half or so, but most slings are going to take several years to grow up. So I think there should be a point where a lot of people, where you you get into the hobby, you buy a couple adults, but then you start buying a bunch of slings and you're raising those slings up. You do get to a point where if you're doing it like most of us do, you buy some slings, you buy some more slings, you buy some more slings, those first couple batches of slings hit adulthood. Now you're kind of, you've shown that you can do this. You've raised them from babies to adults. That shows that you, in the very least, are providing them adequate enough care that they are able to thrive and grow to adulthood. That's an important milestone. 
And you're not going to do that in a matter of months. So I do think that that circles back. This one here kind of brings us back to the first point. There needs to be time in it. I do think that you need to have raised up some slings to adulthood. Quite a few slings to adulthood. I think that's where even some of us who have been in the hobby for a long, long time will experience losses with slings and recognize that they can be tricky. You can't keep them too moist. You can't keep, you know, some of them can't keep too moist. Some of them you can't keep too dry. You got to know when to rehouse them. You got to know what size of them. There's a lot of stuff. A lot Slings is where a lot of people really cut their teeth in this hobby and learn a lot of the, you know, adults, the big thing with adults is obviously the rehousing. So we're going to move on to that point in a second, but slings are where you really have to, for many of them have to have your care on point. A lot of folks can, as pet stores have sadly illustrated for decades, you can take an adult tarantula, drop it in an absolutely abhorrent, terrible, completely incorrect habitat, and they'll still eat, they'll still grow. It's sad but true. They're very, very resilient. Slings, on the other hand, if you don't keep them correctly, you're going to often end up with dead slings. I probably get more questions about sling care than any other type of question, and it's because it scares people because they recognize how easy it is to mess up at that point or, or think it's very easy. They're actually more resilient than we give them credit for. And I want to put that in there because obviously I've talked a lot over the years that they're not quite as hard as people make them out to be, but they're less forgiving of those husbandry mistakes. So now we've decided we need a decent amount of time in the hobby. We need a variety of types of species kept. We need to be able to keep old worlds, new worlds. We need to be able to keep arboreals, fossorials, terrestrials. And we've added in the caveat that a lot of these should be raised from slings. Don't We can't do the cheat. We joke and call it cheating. It's not cheating. It's whatever you you prefer comfortable with but a lot of folks will go out there and like go yeah i know you have slings do you have any sex juveniles because i really don't want to raise up slings nope you got to start right from little teeny tiny slings you got to raise them up and and hold them up loud and proud and go look what i did i raised these guys up i can keep tarantulas the next one we talk about the biggest hurdle that people have to overcome the thing the one aspect of this hobby that demands demands experience you need to experience it you need to experience good ones you need to experience bad ones you need this is probably one of the most important aspects of the hobby and one of those parts of the hobby that can really weed out those that are going to go further and those that may just stay and hang behind with some of the easier species rehousings can't be understated it's got to be you know this is one that should be in bold with asterisks all around it circled highlighted you need to be confident and know how to do your rehousings. Now, for some people, it's going to come down they're confident enough to just do the old poke and pray. You know, that's fine. Whatever works for you. Other people, they're using the cardboard techniques. They're blocking things off. They're ensuring there's no way the spider can escape. Totally cool as well. Regardless, whatever the situation is, you need to have had lots of practice with rehousings. And again, this points back to it takes some time. I was starting to feel pretty good with my rehousings early on. I was starting to get the hang of how they move and what they do when they're scared and when they flatten out and fossorials tend to burrow deeper, deeper, deeper. So you can come, I, I started to pick this stuff up, but it still took time. It still took experience. And there were still incidences where things didn't go exactly as planned that I learned from. So this goes back to the whole adversity thing. You need to have experienced some adversity and you need to expect to experience some adversity. And an experienced keeper that experiences some adversity does not panic, does not freak out, does not end up dropping a spider repeatedly on the floor, does not end up with a spider up on, or maybe it does end up with a spider on the ceiling. I, I shouldn't say that. It, it shouldn't drop on the floor, but it, maybe the spider bolts, jumps on the ceiling. They are able to take a deep breath, formulate a plan, and get that spider back into its enclosure without the keeper coming to harm, without the spider coming to harm. There are going to be mishaps when you rehouse. Again, I've, I've talked for years about the fact, and this is one of the reasons I do all the rehousing videos, is to give people the confidence to recognize that they don't have to be the chaotic events and the scary events that you often see portrayed on YouTube. Those drive me nuts, although... A keen and analytic viewer can watch those moments. Like I like going through those types of videos and breaking down exactly where things went wrong. That's a good learning tool, being able to go through. Because we talk about the fact you can't get experience rehousing old worlds until you actually rehouse old worlds. So there's that catch-22. It's like people say, well, you can't keep old worlds until you get you know experience. Well, how do I get experience if I don't keep them? Watching videos can be very instructional, sometimes for the wrong reasons. You watch those ones. I, I think I've mentioned before when I first started getting into old worlds, I watched all the chaos videos to see where they went wrong. 
It's also good though to go out, find some people that do quality rehousings that have calm spiders and watch them as well to see how they keep them calm. I try to keep all of mine calm. I can think of another, another kindred spirit out there, Dave's Little Beasties, another one that, you know, identical approach as far as I'm concerned to how to keep them calm during rehousings, how to work with your spiders. Those are the ones you want to check out because you want to see, hey, what could go wrong? And then look at examples of them because you want those positive examples of how it can go right. So I do think rehousings, you need to have them down and it needs to be a situation like I will bring up the one that happened a few weeks back or a couple months ago where I was rehousing my H. Tetrica Black and it went downhill quick. Now, part of it, if this was one that I had taped, I could probably point to the spot where I screwed up. And again, they're all they're all learning experiences. But once the spider got out and things got chaotic, I was able to take a deep breath and go, let's regroup and figure out how to go about this. And it took me some time because I realized the spider was spooked. It was out of its enclosure and I had to make sure I got it into the new enclosure. If that had been 10, 15 years ago and that had happened, it would have been a totally different ballgame. I would have you know, it, I don't know if I would have been able to safely get that spider corralled back into its new enclosure. And that's because I've spent a lot of time analyzing my own. I think if you guys recall a while back, I did a bad rehousing where it was the H Maximas and I did a breakdown podcast of everywhere it went wrong and what I could have done to improve that rehousing. That's the level I think an expert should be at. The expert should be analyzing what they do, what others do, come up with a plan. It doesn't have to be the same as everybody else. If you don't like using all the cups and cardboard, there are other people that don't use it, but it should be something that works for you and that minimizes risk of escape. And if the spider does get out of the enclosure, you should know what to do with it. It shouldn't be a panic situation. And I think that only comes from experience and that type of confidence is generally only found with advanced or expert keepers. Now, are there folks out there that haven't had a lot of experience that are like, oh, I don't care, got out, so what? Yes, and that's just more, for lack of a better term, ignorance. I mean, that's just, you don't know any better. So you're like, it's cockiness. That's different. Cockiness and being assured of yourself, being comfortable, being confident, two and totally different things in this hobby. And I've seen cocky people, I don't want to say bit in the butt because that, you know, they could be bit in the butt, but you know what I'm saying? I've seen cocky folks get to situations where they get themselves in spots because they're not really assessing their abilities correctly. They think they're, they've had a lot of rehousings that went well. Maybe they had some close calls and they, you know, they dodged a bullet, didn't realize it, but then they get in those situations where all of a sudden it's like, oh gosh, what do I do? And they're not sure because they really don't have the experience. They kind of overestimated their ability. So rehousings are absolutely key. An expert should be able to rehouse anything, come up with a battle plan for it, and have it go safely, as safely as humanly possible for both the spider and the person. Now, one of the things brought up in this email were what tools the person needs to be aware of or familiar with. And I don't I don't know if there's so many tools. I'm going to segue this the tools one into a different topic. I do think... And this is, you know, kind of a minor one, but you should be familiar with cage sizes. You should know what size enclosure to put things in. You should recognize when one needs a rehousing, when one doesn't. That stuff kind of comes with putting experience in. I know right now, when you're, I would say most experts probably have more unused cages in their garages or in their tarantula rooms than you could, you know, possibly count. A lot of us, you can get any, like you could send me a spider right now. I would look up, the, look at the spider and be able to know what to put it in, what size. I think that kind of comes with the territory, you know, tongs, all the stuff, spray bottles, the tools, that's kind of elementary. Most of us figure that out early on. I would say the biggest tool is to know where to get your information from and how to do your research. An expert should know how to do their research when they get a new spider. And that's part of being able to keep any type of spider is or any type of tarantula is to recognize, all right, maybe I'm not as familiar with this. What do I do now? Where do I get my info from? How do I do research? How do I do proper research? Proper research, unfortunately, does not mean jumping on YouTube, putting in the name of the spider and watching all the videos that pop up because in many ways, YouTube, it's a popularity contest. It's who's got more followers and that's going to put you up top or more subscribers. That's going to put you up top. And a lot of the ones up top aren't the ones you want to get your husbandry information from. So I think a lot of people struggle when they look for information because again, nobody wants to read long articles. I, I get it. And when you go to YouTube and there's somebody, this is the absolute best way to keep T. albopelosis. And, and you click on it and you're like, oh, this person's got a million views. They must know what they're talking about. 
Not always. In some cases, not often. That's the sad truth of it. So you need to know where to get your info from. You need to know that instead of going out, and not to say that Facebook groups are bad, they're not, but there are some Facebook groups that are geared more toward folks that are trying to become educated hobbyists, they're trying to be learned, they're trying to figure this stuff out, not just, you know, hey, I have this spider, but they want to know more about the scientific side of it. You'd want to get on a Facebook group like Arachnido. You, that's one where they are sharing only the best information about tarantulas that are being discovered, name changes, you know, taxonomy, that's a spot that you could go on, read, and become much more knowledgeable about how that stuff works. Because I do think somebody that's an expert should understand that aspect of it. Maybe, you know, I got myself into trouble last time where I talked about being caught up with the name changes and such, and then I used an older name. But I do think it's important that people know where to go for that information, where to find it. Facebook groups are great. A lot of times you will find that information there, but it can be tough to weed through, you know, posting up, you know, the fun stuff, posting up pictures of your spiders. Hey, I'm having a bad day. Show me your orange spiders, whatever. That stuff's fun. Great. Serves a purpose. But for the informational stuff, you want to be able to hit those types of groups. You want to be familiar with arachnoboards. You know, tarantula form is a good one. There's a lot of folks on there that know what they're talking about. You want to be able to go to those boards and know where to look up that information. I, I mentioned arachnoboards because they have a lot more people following it. There's a lot more, for lack of a better term, archived information in there that you can find. But you'd be amazed. Sometimes there's species that come out. And you look at them and go, man, this must be a new one. I've never heard it before. You go over to Arachnoboards, find out it was here in 2001. And I've had this happen many times. It's just, it's one that came in. It was a one and done. It came out. People got it. Nobody bred it again. It disappeared. Now it's coming back. That's great information to have. And you can find information from people that are actually keeping it. And a lot of people that are actually keeping it. I know that folks immediately, a lot of folks will immediately do searches on my website and my YouTube page when they get a new spider. And believe me, I love that. I think it's great. But you should also search other stuff. Hop on a rack and board, see how they're keeping it. Hop on Mike's Basic Tarantulas, see how he's keeping it. You should know those sites. Mike's Basic Tarantulas is a good one. I know he's got stuff there about humidity, but I can tell you that back in the day when I was looking for information, I would go to his website. It is never steered me wrong. I've never had an issue with my husbandry. So you should know about that. And you should be familiar with the world spider catalog when you're looking up, you know, again, this falls in line with as far as keeping track of name changes and taxonomy changes, but also care because you go there, you can find out exactly where these spiders come from. If you know how to read those documents and read those PDFs and the information on them. I know if I have a species that I'm buying and it's something I've never heard of before and I do my search on Arachnoboard, I don't get a lot out of it. The next thing I do is I go over to World Spider Catalog. I do a lot of, I'm on World Spider Catalog a lot, especially now that I've gotten into the True Spiders and the Huntsman. I do a lot of research over there, but I go on, I find out where do they come from. I get a better idea. What is the climate there? It can give you a better, if you look it up and it's an arid region, then you know you're probably not going to go crazy with the moisture. If you go up and it's a very moist region with a lot of rainfall, you know you're going to have to pay attention to that. Those can give you little clues that can help with your husbandry. And those give you the clues to people who are good at getting these species there's not a lot of information on and figuring out the correct husbandry, for lack of a better term, on the fly because there's not a lot out there. So a good, experienced keeper knows where to go to get his or her information. And that's crucial. I think any experienced keeper should be knowledgeable. If somebody comes on and says they're an experienced keeper and they're not familiar with name changes or they're one of those ones that argues against name changes, I'm not quite sure how experienced they are. I've also joked before that I don't, I, I love when I have people that are experienced keepers that comment on my YouTube videos say, Hey, I came here for information. Cause that means a ton to me because I've always thought that eventually people tap out of the Thomas big spider stuff. Cause like, all right, you know, I know how to do this. I don't need to listen to this guy go on about it anymore. It's pretty simple. But when I get somebody on there, it's like, Hey, I've, I've been keeping for 20 years. I just got this species. I popped over here to see how you keep them. That means a lot to me. So that means apparently I've become a trusted source, which is great, but that's not always the best place to go. And I do want to make sure that people realize that if you're going to be an experienced keeper, you've got to go outside of the YouTube universe and find some of these better sources of quality information. It's crucial that you're really going out there finding multiple sources of information, talking to other keepers, and that you have that to fall back on whenever you pick up a species you're not sure about. A keeper that's been doing this for a while, and I've gotten to the point where like sometimes I have videos where Billy buys me stuff and I have to do a lot of research on the fly. I know where to go for that information. I can pull it up very quickly and get a pretty good idea of how to keep the spider, but that's taken years for me. Back in the day, if I got something, I never did this, but if I had gotten something I didn't do research on, I'd be in panic mode trying to figure out how to keep it. Now, the last one I feel needs to be mentioned 
should be added, but I I struggle with it because this is just not, for some folks, this just isn't something they want to do, and I get that. But I do think that it's something, you know, most expert keepers have done at least a couple times, just at the very least just to have experienced it and said they did it. Breeding. I've had some folks who say you're not an expert unless you breed. And I don't necessarily agree with that because there are folks out there that, that keep a lot of different species successfully without breeding them. However, I do feel like it is kind of a component that you're missing out if you don't get it, especially if you're going to, and again, I'm trying to think of the type of individual that would need to know that they were an expert. I, I, I worry about that, but I do think that you should, you know, at least have experience breeding or pairing spiders once. It's it's another new, you know, when you're sitting in there and you're dropping a male in with a female and you suddenly realize this female at any minute could latch on this guy and kill him and I'm out of the male and, you know, it could be a male that you've raised since a baby. You don't want to see it get eaten. You want a successful pairing. It, it, it's an experience that anybody that wants to call them an expert should experience. And I think with some folks, it, it that's what puts them over the top of being true experts. I think right off the bat of Tom Patterson, who's been breeding tarantulas since before I even really seriously kept them. That's a lot of experience. That's somebody that knows their stuff. Because if you can pair these guys and raise up the slings, you know what you're doing. There's no arguing that. Anybody that can go out there and breed these, and it's not as easy as it looks or sounds sometimes, knows what they're doing. So I do think there should be some type of component of breeding in there. I mean, I struggle with it because there are folks out there, again, that have been in the hobby a long time. It just it wasn't what they wanted to do. But I think the majority of us feel like once you breed one, you raise up those slings, that, that's like a huge feather in your cap. That's, that's a, another huge aspect of the hobby that you've successfully conquered and experienced. So some type of pairing would be warranted, I do think. you know. And again, I would love to do more breeding. I think that's the one thing that I wish I had more experience in only because with all the, you know, between the family and work and all this Tom's Big Spider stuff, there's not a lot of room for their time for that. Like just caring for my collection, sitting there and pairing a male and a female, sitting there watching them, you know, again, I don't just put them together and walk away and just say, hey, good luck, buddy, YOLO, hope you don't get eaten. I watch them. I sit right there with my paintbrush is ready to separate them. It takes a lot of time. I just don't have all the time to do it. But I will say it was incredibly satisfying. The pairings that I've done, I was very proud of it. I felt like that was a huge step forward for me in the hobby. And I would definitely love to do it again. So I do think that someone who really wants that title, really wants to be able to say, hey, I'm an expert. They should have done some breeding. There should be some pairing in their future. So those would be, and, and, and again, I, I know you, you asked for tools. I don't know if, I think the biggest thing for tools would be the educational aspect of it, the being able to keep up on the scientific aspect of it. But again, I think it really comes down. I mean, I don't think it's, it's one of those questions that's both simple and difficult because simple, because I do think there's some things we can lay out. You need to be able to do this. You have need to have been, have done this successfully, but I also think it's difficult because the amount of time it takes people to get to this point it varies greatly. You can have somebody that gets in the hang of this in a few years and they're busting them out and you know, you check with them 10 years later, they're still doing great with it. You have other folks that could be 10 years before they make those transitions into old worlds and keeping more difficult tarantulas. It, it all depends on the person that's actually doing it. But again, to encapsulate, we are looking at the amount of time in the hobby. I think that's important. You need to have some time in the hobby. You need to have kept old worlds. You need to have kept new worlds. You need to have kept arboreals, fossorials, terrestrials successfully. And we're going to add the caveat that many of these should have been raised from slings. There should be little babies that you are stressing over at some point and growing up the big, beautiful adults that you can show off and brag about later. I do think that's an important component. You would better have your rehousings done. Are there going to be mishaps? Yes, there are. But anybody that knows how to do their rehousings, that has a system down, that has that experience, will be able to rebound from those quickly. They'll be able to regroup, take a step back and go, I'm going to be able to get the spider where it needs to go with minimal fuss. They're not going to be freaking out. They're not going to be having nightmares over it. And tools, I think, obviously, besides just recognizing enclosure size and everything, which is just something that really, I think that's kind of tarantula 101. I think the biggest one is being informed. We go back to that being an informed hobbyist. You need to know where to get your info, info from. You need to follow what's going on in the hobby. You need to know that you can go on Arachnido, Arachnoboards, World Spider Catalog, Mike's Basic Tarantulas. You need to be able to talk to other keepers to get your information. Somebody that's an expert in the hobby, I should be able to send you a mystery spider right now. You should be able to pick that mystery spider up, 
open it, go, oh, it's this species, and immediately know where to go to get information to make sure that that spider is set up correctly, and you should be able to do it quickly. I know a lot of us get into the hobby spending months upon months of doing exhaustive research on them, but there should come to a point where you've got that foundational knowledge that when you get a new spider, it's just a matter of looking at these places, you know, knowing where to look for it and get that information you need. And then I do think there should be some breeding in there. At some point, you want to breed something to put that final feather in your cap to go, you know what? I've not only kept these correctly. I've not only raised babies up to adults. I've not only done rehousings. I've not only kept all these different species but I've actually made it a male and female successfully, which they do all the hard work, let's call it as it is. I've got a sack out of it. I've cared for a sack. I've got my first in-star slings, second in-star slings. And then down the road, you're able to point to them. Like I have a couple here that I raised from, I raised the parents, I raised the babies. It's, it's a great feeling. So those would be the keys to being an expert keeper. But I can't end this podcast without pointing out that Part of the whole thing is the journey. Part of the tarantula keeping, and, and I look, I can look back at this now and look at the how amazing and fun it was to, to do that early research, to find out this stuff, to you know get your raise your first spider and have it show its adult colors, to do your first parent, all that information is amazing and I still feel like I'm learning I'm always picking stuff up so I do hesitate I do kind of cringe when somebody's like well how can I tell if I'm an expert because that was never the end goal for me I, I have to say that there was never I didn't get into this hobby going someday I'm going to be an expert I, it was never anything I worried about even when I first started doing the Tom's Big Spider stuff I made it very clear I did not and was not an expert I was reporting things information that I had read up I'd done a lot of research I had started to get experiences of my own and the whole point was to put that stuff out there in a di easily digestible format for folks that are looking for good solid information to weed through all that and put it together and that was why it was important for me at that point to say I wasn't an expert even now it kind of makes me cringe when somebody's like oh you're an expert or whatever I, I have experience I have a lot of experience and again I do think what I bring to the table is because I write and make videos about them and talk about them so often I do have to examine the hobby from angles most people don't I do have to collect information I do a lot of notes copious amounts of notes and homework on these guys so I'm still doing the research part of it but I do worry for folks to go out and this I'm not Dr. Chani this is in no way shape or form directed at you I could tell just by how you described yourself in your email and the sincerity you had when you talked about the fact that you are easing your way into the fact that you're coming to this having a background in insects and you are taking that stance that I'm still learning that's awesome so this is not directed toward you I want to make it very clear but there are folks out there that do want that because they want to be able to hold it over somebody and that's the part that kind of bothers me and that's why I think a lot of us don't like to say that because there's always somebody out there that is more knowledgeable than you there's always somebody out there that has much more experience it's had much more success with breeding or whatever it, need, it may be and you always need to keep that in mind I think of you know when I think of experts in the hobby, people that come to mind, you know, right off the bat, Tom Patterson, I know I mention him a lot. If he ever hears this stuff, it's probably going to go to his head. I'm totally kidding, Tom, if you do hear this. Great guy, somebody I look up to, been in the hobby way longer than me, done way more for the hobby than I will ever do. And it's important to recognize folks like that. Martin Husser from Bird Spiders CH, another one who's out there finding these animals, studying them in the wild. I mean, that's amazing stuff. Those are people that, you know, he not only keeps them, but he's out there seeing them in the wild. That's amazing stuff to me. Those are the ones that I look at when I think of experts. And my big thing is don't worry about the expert. It's all arbitrary. It's all just made up honestly keep the spiders enjoy the spiders work through the hobby at your own pace and don't worry about it the only time i can ever see that being a big deal is again when somebody's trying to pull the expert card over somebody else and that's the only time i see it coming into play you know where you're at i know where i'm at as a keeper i know my confidence level with keeping i know i can do the stuff that i just reported here and i feel confident doing so i feel like i can jump on a podcast and go on and on and on for an hour about these topics that's what makes me feel like i know what i'm doing but it doesn't matter to me. I'm still learning. I'm so that's one of the reasons why I just branched out and, you know, talking about the true spiders and the huntsman and the trapdoor spiders and the, all the other, I'm branching out because I want to learn more for me. 
the part of the fun in the hobby is that learning, is that getting more information, is that going, oh my God, I never knew this before, learning those new scientific names. That's the part that keeps me going. That's the part that keeps me interested. That's the part of the journey that makes this so much fun. And I think as soon as somebody brands themselves an expert, they have in many ways closed their mind off to being an active learner, to continuing to learn about these animals. So had to put the disclaimer in there because that's why I struggle. That's why I don't like telling people, hey, I've had people ask me, hey, I've done this, 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 and this. Do you think I'm an expert? Hell, I don't know. Sure. I, I, I don't care, nor should you. Are you having fun in the hobby? Yes. Are you enjoying breeding? Absolutely. Who cares then? Who needs to be an expert? I don't need to be an expert in anything. I just, it's... For me, it's just, I, I guess for me, it's good to have credibility. If people are going to come to me, if all of a sudden you found out I don't even keep any of these animals, you know, that would obviously be very damaging. But I do feel like that in the grand scheme of things, for the individual, that shouldn't even matter. And I guess we'll add a last one. An expert shouldn't care. Last one, number seven, biggest point, you know, the golden rule. An expert shouldn't care where they're at. An expert shouldn't be running around going, I need to be an expert. If you're an expert, you're comfortable in what you're doing. You're confident in your craft, for lack of a better term, and, and keeping these animals correctly, and you don't care about it. You don't need to go around bragging about it. I think that would be the last one I put in there. So awesome question. Uh, you'll be hearing another one from the professor because he gave me a couple good ones there. Or she Again, I apologize. I don't when I went through the email, I was thinking guy, but as I started talking about it, I'm like, I don't know exactly who I'm talking to. The name, I can't say the person's name because they they asked I not use it, but that might have been one. I should probably look it up after this and see if what it is. But anyway, awesome question. I will definitely be covering more of your questions in the future. Thank you so much for emailing me, and thank you for all of you that have just listened to this. Hopefully, this was instructional. Hopefully, I got my point across because we did cover what I. This is one I feel pretty good about. You know what? After the lack of sleep and all, I thought this was going to be a debacle, but I'm feeling really good about this. The funny thing about the podcast is I can't tell you how many times I walk away from a podcast, and Billy and I usually what happens is I do them before we go walk the dogs, and Billy will be like, "What'd you do your podcast?" And I'll be like, "Oh, this." I do, you know, and we'll talk about it, and be like, "You know what? I don't know. I think I rambled." And then I'll get like all these emails back. This was one of the best I've ever heard you do. So it's great in a way because I can put ones out there that I'm worried about and not lose sleep over it. But it's weird in a way because I never know which ones are going to resonate with people or which ones I think I just rambled and people go, man, that was awesome. I needed to hear that. So hopefully this is one that you guys enjoyed. Hopefully this is one that I didn't ramble on. Definitely have an idea for next year. And again, remind you guys, if you have ideas, feel free to email me or leave messages on Facebook. And I'm always looking for new ideas because I want to know what you guys want to hear. And again, if I don't immediately pick it, that doesn't mean that I'm looking at it going, it's stupid. It probably means that I'm not ready to address it yet. I don't like jumping into these things half cocked or in a situation where I don't feel like I have all the information. I will hang back. I will add it to my little journal here, a list of topic ideas, and then I will wait till I feel like I can do it justice. So that will do it for this one. As always, you can find me at tomsbigspiders.com. You can find me on Tom's Big Spiders on YouTube, which I just posted a molting video where I got some good ones on there. Billy helped me out, obviously, as always. And we got some really beautiful spiders on there just molted that I was glad I could show off, including my Pamphibedia species, Duran, who really had it. I'm, the one thing I'm finding about Pamphos, you think they're adult, like you've had them for seven, eight years. They're adult. They've had the same color for four or five years. And all of a sudden they molt and their colors completely change. Coolest thing ever. I've had this happen a couple of times with them. So uh, with that species or that species. Yeah, see, this is the lack of sleep with that genus of tarantulas. So if you want to check out that one, I got some okay footage. She didn't spread all out. She was very nervous and kind of skittish, but I did get, you can kind of see that she definitely changed. That'll do it for this one. As always, guys, stay safe. We'll catch you all next time.